Today, we're talking about philosophies to boost your investment portfolio, principles to become financially secure, and the keys to creating a large income in the shortest possible period of time. Welcome to episode 17 with a man that's been through it all, Randy Schroeder. You are listening to Len Jones, Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at trueface.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you going to learn today. Hello, party people. It is a damn good day to have a damn good day. And I got to tell you that you need to get your ass in the mirror right now and say to yourself, I am, I can, and I will. Because the fact is, any one of you are capable of making life-changing moves. And if you don't, someone less qualified will. Now, I commend you for taking the time to invest in yourself. But I recommend you prepare your mind because you're about to feed it some major brain berries. If you're allergic to brain berries, then turn your brain vacuum on because today's going to be a treat. We try to diversify our guests on this podcast to give you the best in various categories and today's guest randy schroeder absolutely smashed it so first things first if you're new to the podcast our mission here is twofold to educate millennials by dissecting the come-up stories of incredible humans by extracting the golden nuggets that you can apply now to better your life and second to have all my friends in my life that are making moves to meet my other friends in life that are making moves to create one giant community of extraordinary people randy's life seems something out of a movie. He went from making 250k at 20 years old to making seven figures as a stockbroker to having a serious drug and alcohol problem which sent him to societal rock bottom, also known as jail. But through all of that, he vividly depicts what was going on in his head as he transformed himself through all of these crazy life experiences. Now, Randy is a multi-seven-figure network marketing income earner as well as a seasoned investor and consumer of personal development. And I just love the fact that Randy keeps it real and you got to respect that. I found it particularly interesting his personal recounts of his interactions with his friend and mentor Jim Rome, who is no doubt one of the greatest speakers of this past century, whose books continue to inspire and motivate every day. Randy gives us the blueprint for how to create a large income in the shortest period of time possible, his ideology on why and where he invests his personal finances, along with basic principles everyone should follow to become financially secure. Now, before we start, I must say, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to support future conversations like these, please leave a positive review. It means a lot. So without further ado, let's jump into it. We are here with the legendary Randy Schroeder. The legendary. Randy, how was your Christmas? Uh, You know what? It was was a Christmas that you can only really experience if you have a two-year-old, which I do, and it was awesome. (laughs) It was great. Well, Randy, you've labeled yourself as a day after Christmas morning type of guy, so Seems like you like to just get right into it. Oh, uh, you know what? This is, um, I know that the topic of the, of the podcast is kind of about success and success principles. And so I'll tell you the easiest ones. This is the easiest one of all. Um, in the morning, I have a routine. I'm a very routine driven guy. And uh, I'm an early morning guy every day of the year, basically. Um, but what I do first thing in the morning is I get up and I clear out whatever negatives may have snuck into my psyche overnight. And I'm a really positive person, but the fact is some negatives can sneak, sneak in overnight. And so my routine is that the first thing in the morning, Ian, when other people are watching Fox News, and if you're a uh, if you're a Republican and you watch Fox News, you get mad at Democrats, and if you're a uh, if you're watching CNN, you're a Democrat, and in the morning you get mad at Republicans, and that's you know people start their day in a way that I don't think sets them up for success. And the way that I start my day it sounds kind of funky, but I've got um, a, a series of things that I've done for a long time that assure that the lid comes off that might have snuck in overnight. And so, for example, I'm a horse racing fan. And uh, this morning, I watched yet again, and it was probably the 3,000th time that I watched Secretariat win the 1973 Belmont Stakes. And that sounds silly, but even if you're not a horse racing fan, if you've never seen that, if you were to watch it now, your energy level would be lifted. It just would. It was the greatest single horse racing performance ever. And whether, whenever I watch anyone or anything do something exceptional, then that changes the way that I, the way that I describe it, the way that I vibrate. And many, many, many mornings, again, I'm a horse racing fan. And so there's a, a, a mayor named Zenyatta who won 19 races in a row. No horse has ever done that. And so I start my day watching something like that. 
and it can be the same. I could do it by watching Jack Nichols' greatest shots or Michael Jordan's greatest buzzer beaters. But that's how I start my every morning. You're just waking up and immediately putting on your phone something that inspires you, or do you just don't even touch your phone as soon as you wake up? No, first thing I do, first thing I do is I go to something that I know is going to make me at my best. I mean, before I watch anything else, before I check stock portfolios, before I see what the market did or didn't do overnight, before I see what my business did or didn't do overnight, um, I change my vibration level and I get it to the right pitch so that my very first interactions with people, and this, by the way, this always happens no matter what time of the year it is, it happens for me before daylight. I mean, that's what I do. And so my vibration level is at a certain place. And then, you know, part of my life experience is, and it's not something, it's just a part of my life experience. And you and I spoke about it briefly, but I had a, a, a pretty miserable bout with drugs and alcohol for a long time. And I've now been successfully and safely clean and sober for a long number of years. But my next my next move is uh, I then go to a recovery meeting. And so that's at 7 a.m. pretty much every day. And many people reviewing this cast wouldn't need that. But what it is for me today is an act of service. That's what I do. I don't go to that meeting to stay sober. I'm successfully, safely sober. But I go to that meeting to help other people get across the bridge that I struggle so hard to get across. And so I believe that anybody could start their day the way that I do. First, by doing something that eliminates any negatives that snuck into my psyche overnight, and then in an act of service. And by the time I leave my home, it's a 30-minute drive to where I go, I spend an hour and 15 minutes in the meeting, and then I come back. By the time I get back home, I've set myself up. I've already set myself up for a successful day. Almost irrespective of whatever else happens now, for the balance of this day, I've already set up a pattern of activities that almost guarantee the outcome that while it may or may not be what I want, the outcome that I get today will be an outcome that I'm satisfied with because I've so far done the things required to make that. Not just likely, but the only logical outcome. So simple, simple thing. It seems like when you're going to those meetings, it's very therapeutic for you just to get your mind and head in the right position to be able to do everything. A hundred percent. And I take my little boy with me, you know, and so I'm down there at 7 a.m. with a two-year-old on my lap and I'm helping other people. And that, of course, also helps me. So anyway, the simple thought, Ian, is that um, for so many years in my life, and I think so many people allow outside influences to dictate the way that we feel. And I'm in very, very intentional about the way that I go about my day, starting very early in the morning. And I find that irrespective of whatever else comes at me today, because of the way I start my day, I'm going to have a different outcome. So the simple first thought is I'm intentional in the way that I live my life. And I am very cautious about what I see, what I hear, uh, what I read, who I interact with, and places that I frequent, because all of that is going to find its way to my heart. And it's then going to be evidenced in my behaviors and all of my outcomes. So simple thought. Were you always this disciplined or did you go through some periods of your life where it was a slow build up? <laughs> no, I was for years. I was totally undisciplined. For me, and I know that so many people, for whatever reason, struggle with the idea of making money. I don't. Making money has just simply never been one of the difficult things for me. Living a successful and happy life within the context of, of what most would consider to be success. I've always had financial success. And most would think that that would cause one to have happiness. Now, I believe that financial pressure can um, degrade the possibility for happiness. Financial resources don't create happiness. But if one has financial resources and therefore no financial pressure, um, then we have a different possibility. But uh, I didn't learn how to live a successful life until a long time after I learned how to make money. <laughs> well, you're the, the first thing I, I heard from you when we first got on the phone was you're the luckiest guy alive. And obviously, that is, that is something that, you know, whether wherever you are, whatever wakes of life you're born into, that's a mindset that you believe you are the happiest person ever. Obviously, money can't buy happiness. But what is the feeling like, what does it mean to be the luckiest guy ever to you? Well, what, what I want, you know, there, there was a time, Ian, earlier in my life, because I was raised, as we talked about briefly, I, I was raised in an environment of financial scarcity. There was not enough money. And I remember the constant struggle and strife that my parents always had, because there just wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough money to keep the lights turned on. There wasn't enough money to have a telephone. There wasn't enough money. And I remember um, the angst that that caused. And when I say that I'm the luckiest person on earth, um, I have come from an environment of financial scarcity to a position of, of financial abundance. I've come from an environment where almost no matter what I had, um, I, I worked so hard to get things because I thought if I had things that that would make me happy. I remember Ian, when I was in third grade, you know, I had this conversation. When I was in third grade, that was when I decided I wouldn't live a life of financial scarcity 
because I went to school and I saw that the quote cool kids were wearing Converse sneakers. I went home to my mom. I said, Mom, I want Converse sneakers. And she asked me how much they cost. And when I told her, she said, Randy, that's too much. And I went to school the next day and I saw the quote cool kids were wearing Levi's brand jeans. And so I went home. I said, Mom, I want Levi's jeans. And she asked me how much they cost. When I told her, she said, that's too much. And that set me off on a mission to have the things that the cool kids had. And so when I say I'm the luckiest guy on earth, here's why. It's because in today, if I want to buy a Ferrari, I can, but I don't have to, to feel good about me. Today, if I want to wear a particular brand of clothing, I can, but I don't have to, because I'm concerned about what somebody else thinks about me. When I say I'm the, I'm the luckiest person on earth, it's because I have found a sense of peace and ease and comfort that lets me experience life in a way that's filled with joy. And my gosh, I'm the luckiest person on earth. Remember, I, uh, um, my, my bottom got pretty low, as you and I described. I mean, I was uh, in seven different alcohol and drug rehab centers. I was actually uh, arrested three times for cocaine possession. And uh, I've spent time in jails and in prisons. And if you were to see the world that I live in today, I mean, I live in a world that is absolutely a fairy tale. I have a, a beautiful and a wonderful wife. We have a as far as I know, I, I, I cannot imagine a more fulfilling marriage than the one that I have. And I have positive relationships with all of my children, both those adults and now my little boy who's less than two. Um, when I say I'm the luckiest guy on earth, there's a lot of reason for that. I am. Yeah. I feel, I mean, this might be like a personal question, so feel free to, to not answer if you're not comfortable with it. But what's it like going from, because I know you started life in the stockbroker world. And you definitely had, you know, great success with that and you're, you know, on top of the world. But what's it like going from a place of so high and then ending up in a jail cell? Like, what is that experience like through the human mind? Oh, that one, it's not, it's not um, overly personal at all. I, I reflect upon that a great deal. I know um, when, and by the way, there, there's a lot of different iterations of incarceration. And my particular iteration of that was not a very nice one. Um, there I don't have, I think I can safely say today that I don't have a bigoted bone in my body. I mean, I don't. I think that all people are the same and that once you peel off the exterior, what's inside is is so, it's the same. Um, but whenever you're one person of any race or, or nationality in a incarcerated environment with 11 people who are not of that same one, um, it almost, it wouldn't matter which you were, you know, if you were one white guy among 11 uh, Latinos, that wouldn't be very good. If you were one Latino among um, 11 white guys, that probably wouldn't be very good if you were one white among 11 blacks and so on and so on. And that was the environment that I was in. Um, and it was um, complete, absolute, total devastation is the answer. Complete, absolute, total devastation. I mean, I lived in, uh, I again today live in a community called Rancho Santa Fe, California, which is one of the most affluent zip codes in America. And I lived in that same zip code before the travail, before the bottoming. And to go from what would be perceived by almost anyone as, as a pinnacle of success to what anyone would have to agree was a complete crater of devastating, devastating failure. Um, you know, that, that, um, it, it causes one to consider every single thing, but I really believe that all of the things that I had done, even in advance of that devastation, because drugs and alcohol are a nasty thing. And once they take control and until a dramatic shift occurs, then they just own you. And um, the, the good news, I can now today, I can find good in every single thing that's ever occurred in my life. And the good news is that that creates a forced cessation, that creates a forced end to what had caused the problem. And then after finally, once again, having freedom, uh, then I had to, to change all parts of my life to maintain that new, that new status. But um, what is it like? My gosh, um, it, it's um, until in the lesson, I hope. I hope that our viewers and listeners don't ever have to go through it. But until you've experienced it, it's quite difficult to imagine losing one's personal freedom. For those who have not, until you've lost your personal freedom, then it's hard to imagine the complete devastation that that creates. But on the flip side of it, um, I today probably appreciate and am grateful for so many things that the vast majority of people walking around the United States, at least, completely take for granted. I mean, later today, I will go and play golf. And that. Uh, and had I not gone through some of the things that I've gone through, I might take that for granted. But today I won't. I, mean, I will find joy in that. That very few people in that same golf club will find joy in because they haven't been on the other side of it to quite the degree that I have. Would you say that that is in a, a low key kind of a it was a blessing in disguise the whole experience? Of course it was. I mean, the fact is that I, I love my life today. I love every single thing about it. 
And all of my life's experiences, both the greatest victories and the greatest defeats, they add up to what my life experience is today. And really and truly, there is not a single thing about my current life experience that I don't value and cherish and I'm grateful for. And, and um, the, the tiny things that I would like to improve, then I have the great benefit of being able to improve them if I choose to be willing to do the work. Absolutely. So, uh, Randy, did you go to college and what college? I did. Um, I went to college. Actually, I went to Utah State University. I went on a golf scholarship. Um, about two years into it, it was discovered that while I was a pretty good golfer, I had no credits. <laughs> so that was, what, that was what ended that experience. And uh, I then embarked on an entrepreneurial life. And by the way, that's not something I'm overly happy with. I mean, I wish that I had completed that. That wasn't one of the bright spots in my life. Um, but I, uh, I went to college. I did not, however, graduate. I played two years of collegiate golf. And then, uh, as I said, I didn't have the credits to maintain my college eligibility. And I then branched out into entrepreneurship at that point. Well, things have times have definitely changed in terms of the how people perceive college. Um, right. It's definitely a new world where you don't people that have a, a degree means very little, especially an right. MBA to just people. Right. It's it's really what have you done? Um, right. Back when you were in school, I'm assuming you know there was a much more pressured situation. How did you see like right after school? Do you think that affected you like mentally not finishing your degree, or no. do you think like what did those no. next few steps look like for you? Well, for me, as I indicated, making money has just never been hard. And so when I left school, um, it was uh, – if I had the chance to make every decision over again, I might make a different decision. But I left school because I was making way more money than any of my professors. I mean the year that I was 20 years old, I made $250,000. And you know, there wasn't a lot of reason. I couldn't see why continuing to stay in school was going to create a different outcome than what I was doing. Um, so again, for me, financial success has, has simply, that's not the problem. The problem is finding a way to be more happy more of the time, to be comfortable in one's skin, to make decisions today that will create a greater outcome tomorrow. Um, making money, I, I've come to believe this, I've come to believe that making money is either a God-given gift or, because I, I meet some people who um, don't seem to have a lot of the success attributes and habits and patterns that I would say are required for success, who nevertheless have that success. And so I think every once in a while, there is just a God-given ability, a trait that is innate uh, for one to recognize opportunity and act on it and so on. Uh, that's not me. The other, the other way is to identify what one's various talents are. And I believe this. I believe, um, and one can have all kinds of different opinions, but I believe this. I believe that a kind and loving God has graced each of us with talents sufficient to succeed in significant fashion, in mo monumental fashion. The problem is that talent makes no money, skill does. And it's those very, very small percentage of people, a huge percentage of people, almost everyone who is not in some way uh, incredibly impaired, has the God-given gift, the talent required to succeed in magnificent fashion. But it's now a monumentally small percentage of those people who become willing, for whatever reason, to work and 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 work, to refine those talents into skills that become beneficial to others. Those who choose to work, to refine talents into skills that become beneficial to others, these are they who are able to get the key and the lock of financial success, not just once, but many times in their lives if they choose to, and can then use that success in, in benevolent ways to benefit other people and humanity. You know, it's very special that you are an avid golfer. Just to yeah. have something like that that you love and you can do every day or every week that just right. takes your mind off of it. For me, it's scuba diving. But you can't really just get up and go scuba diving every day. It's a little more uh, right. work involved. Um, but right. I feel like a lot of everyone needs a sincere hobby or, or something that takes their mind off of things because it's easy to get sucked into the work life. And I'm curious, like, so did you go right into stockbroking after that? Or how did that, what's, how did that story, like, how did you get into that life? Oh, there's a lot to that, actually. Um, I, uh, I was raised in a little town in Idaho, and there was a, a company there that was in the weight loss business. I worked in that company in my high school years. And then that, when I indicated that I had my first financial successes at a very young age, it was because I first became a franchise sales rep for that company. I then started my own weight loss business. And that was what I did when I, when I exited the college experience. I, I knew how to do that. And so I started a weight loss company. Um, that weight loss company, I then sold to um, a gentleman named Erwin Jacobs. Erwin Jacobs then and still today owns the oldest direct selling company in the world. It's called Watkins Corporation, based in Winona, Minnesota. They were formed in 1903, the same year that was um, Harley-Davidson was formed. 
And as a result of me selling them my business, um, that that resulted in me being a member of the board of directors of a direct selling company at a very, very young age. That happened in 1983. So at that time, I was 26 years old. And so I was a member of the board of directors of a direct selling company at that point in time. Um, when I sold my business, I learned something really important about me. When it was my business, there was nothing that I wasn't not just willing to do, but eager to do. It was my business. When I sold it to somebody else, and I now became the president of the company under someone else's ownership, I then realized that doing the same things that I was once doing for me, now I was doing to someone's employee, the same things I used to find joy in, I resented. And so after a short period of time, I sold that business. And when I sold that business, um, I sold it and I had my first meaningful financial outcome. I had some money and I moved into Southern California. And when I moved here, I had no idea what I would do, but I was on the beach one day and a fellow said, you should become a stockbroker. And um, that was also an interesting experience. When I uh, decided I wanted to become a stockbroker, I then discovered for the first time the disadvantage of not having gained a college degree because the firms that I wanted to work for were only hiring people not just with graduates, but with graduate degrees. You had to have an MBA. I wanted to work at Merrill Lynch. And, um, and I remember I went in to fill out my application at Merrill Lynch, and Sandy was the uh, George Blatt was the uh, regional vice president of Merrill in the area at the time, and his, his assistant's name was Sandy. And I went in and asked for an application, and uh, she said, well, just quickly tell me first a little bit about yourself. She said, where'd you go to college, and where'd you get your graduate degree? And I said, I didn't go. And she wouldn't even allow me to fill out an application. She said, I'm sorry, you don't, you don't qualify to fill out an application. And so um, I used to say for a long time, I've made this statement many times earlier in my life, that a thought popped into my mind. I no longer believe that a thought popped into my mind. I now believe that there are moments of inspiration. And so a thought popped into my mind, or a more enlightened view is there was a moment of inspiration. And in that moment of inspiration, I asked on the way out, I asked the receptionist, what time does Mr. Bellette come into the office? He comes in at six. What time does Sandy come in? She comes in at seven. And so the next morning I came in at 6.05 because I knew that Sandy wouldn't be there to screen it. And I knocked on Mr. Bellette's door and I said, uh, Mr. Bellette, your assistant wouldn't even allow me to fill out an application. But I believe that I could be a very, very successful broker here and I think you should hire me. And, you know, later that day, I got a handwritten offer of employment and I was the only person that Merrill Lynch hired that year in California who got a salary, not just commissions. And I was the only person who was actually given an office as opposed to starting in the bullpen at that point in time, all simply because I did what no one else is willing to do. So that's how I became a stockbroker. Wow. Thinking outside the box. In these worlds, if you're looking for a job, you got to get through the scurry. People aren't looking at resumes Absolutely. anymore. You got to stand out, reach out on LinkedIn, you do whatever you can, just bombard the CEO and the marketing directors and whoever you're talking to with private messages showing that you're consistent. Um, people just got to think outside the box and it's totally possible and that's what you did. So yeah. w once you were a stockbroker, did you then take your Series 7 and do all that stuff or was that? Oh, oh sure. Yeah, I went out to, I went to Merrill Lynch's training class. It was Merrill Lynch training class number 308. In fact, I remember it with complete clarity. I went out and spent a month in New York, and, and I had a great experience there. And, you know, even it's just part of my life experience. Even then, um, alcohol was a problem for me. And so I will candidly admit that I accomplished a fraction of what I could have accomplished were that not a problem. And that problem grew and it grew and it grew and it blossomed. Um, but that's what ultimately resulted in my, my departure from um, – from the brokerage industry. I mean, that wasn't a happy departure. We've talked about, you know, a bull market is a series of higher highs and higher lows and a bear market is a series of lower highs and lower lows. And I was then going through, well, I didn't know it, a very long bear market of a series of lower highs and lower lows as things just continued to get worse and worse and worse. And ultimately, um, for a really modest, um, modest infraction, not something that was a serious error at all, but a modest infraction, I was to show up and appear at a New York Stock Exchange administrative hearing. And because I was coked out of my brain, I didn't show up. And that resulted in me getting a lifetime suspension from the New York Stock Exchange. And so when you've talked about what did it feel like to get a prison sentence, it felt the very same way, really the same way as one day being told that I could no longer work at Merrill Lynch. That was a dream for me. And not just being told that I couldn't work at Merrill Lynch, but that I couldn't do any more for anybody else what I did for a living the following. I mean, on Friday, I was a stockbroker. And on Monday, I not only couldn't work at that firm, I couldn't stay in that industry ever again in my life. And uh, that was pretty bad. So you're like 27, 28 years old, and you have a bunch of money in your account, and you're just raging, just 
Absolutely. Okay. Living, living life. I mean, a lot of people, especially any 27, 28 year old in that age would probably want to do the same to some degree. It just, yeah. it just got, it just got too bad. Well, at that point in time, I still incorrectly thought it was a party. And what you just said, there's lots of 27, 28 year I, I thought it was a party. I didn't think it was a problem. I just thought it was a party. It was just fun. It was what we were doing. You know, and it was in hindsight, it was there was warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. And I just completely ignored them. I mean, the fact is that um, money does good things when we become mature in its use. Money can be an incredible negative when we're not mature in its use. And, um, you know, I thought I was all that plus, 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 And I thought I was above all the rules. And turns out I wasn't. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> Your story is very relatable. I mean, um, it's cool in college, but then afterwards, then it gets becomes a problem. Oh, you know what? There comes a time. There comes a time. And, and, and I have so much compassion for all the people out there who have crossed into the problem part and they still don't know it because I lived that for a long time. I lived in the problem for a long time and I didn't know it. And it was it was hidden by the fact that throughout it all, I've always had financial success throughout it all. And so that financial success tend to, it, it disguised the fact that things were not good. Right. Can you, uh, so following after that situation with getting out of the stock exchange and being a stockbroker, you have since still been an adamant investor and in, in all those things. Like, have you learned, uh, taken those principles with you? Yeah. Um, you know, things change. I'm 61 years old today. And, but at, at earlier times in my life, I'd I was willing to take risks that I don't take today. Um, today, uh, I actually invest very conservatively. I have a very, very boring stock portfolio. Even boring stock portfolios are going down now. But you know, I only, I only buy, I only buy investments in great companies that I believe are going to be a great company decades from now. I'm not concerned about this week or this month's performance. But yeah, the uh, the experience that I had as a broker has made me very much more able to manage my own finances. I think it's a great benefit for people to be able to manage their own finances as opposed to be dependent upon other people to do that. And it's also something that I enjoy. You know, you referenced the uh, the break of the golf course. That's for me, is a very, very important break. And I happen to belong to a golf club where telephones are simply not allowed, period. And so it's not unlike, I'm also a scuba diver, by the way. And I, I enjoy I enjoy scuba um, because it's something you can't do fast. And I'm kind of fast. Everything about me is a little too fast. And so you just can't dive fast, right? I mean, right. You, only, you only do that at a kind of a methodical rate. Um, but the golf course for me is that same thing. And I still compete. I still play competitively. And, uh, but it's four hours. And, and I, I play a lot. I play a lot of golf. It's four hours multiple times per week where the telephone is completely shut off. And, and that uh, gives me clarity. It stops me from having my head completely wrapped up in my business world. And, and actually managing my stock portfolio does the same. It does the same thing for me because it's a break from my daily interactions that I have in my business. Yeah, I can relate well to the scuba part of that. Um, just because it's so uh, one of the hop, everyone has a lot different hobbies in the world. Scuba is so unique, I think, because you're you're not worried about anything else when you're underwater. Right. You know, like right. you're not worried about your phone, your texts, your right. emails. You're like, yo, I gotta make sure this tank's continuously breathing, exactly. and you're just right. totally in the zone. And it's just like a euphoric feeling. So anyone that hasn't tried scuba, try it soon, especially because the the seas are going down fast, and it's not a not a not a good time. But at the same time, you gotta enjoy them. Um, yeah. Do you have a certain formula you use when you look at a company from an investment standpoint? I know you mentioned. Um, you're looking at companies that are going to be successful 10 years down the road. But is there anything else you could share on like your personal ideology of what you look for? Yeah. Um, recognize again, I'm, I'm 61. And so what's appropriate for me would not be the exact same risk profile. It would be appropriate for a 28 or a 38-year-old person. Um, but for me, I mean, there are, there are some companies that have global brands and franchises that would be very, very difficult for somebody else to overtake in the near term. For example, Warren Buffett in an interview recently was asked what he thought about um, the new companies that are coming along trying to compete with Amazon. And and Buffett said, well, it'd be really hard to give a guy like Jeff Bezos a seven-year head start. You know, He has a seven-year head start. And so it's it's very, very difficult for me to imagine that Amazon will not be a larger company five years from now than it is today. And even if it stays its current size, one can be a, a successful investor in that company. So uh, I'll give you an idea of the, the kinds of stocks that are in my stock portfolio, and that maybe would answer your question. Um, and by the way, then I'm going to share with you a, a simple model for making money. I've referenced several times that making money for me has not ever been the problem. And the reason it's not been the problem is because I have a model that makes that possible. 
But um, in my stock portfolio, I have uh, I have great big great companies. Berkshire Hathaway is my single largest holding. Warren Buffett has been running that company since the early 1960s, and and uh, he has a proven ability to find unique opportunities. And so I I let him find those opportunities instead of me trying to do that. And I do that by being an investor in Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, my own Johnson and Johnson. Johnson and Johnson is uh, a large healthcare diversified company. It's had some bad press recently, but that's created more op- buying opportunities. I own Philip Morris. Uh, Philip Morris is um, a, a controversial brand in a lot of people's names because it's tobacco. But the fact is that they've raised their dividend every year since they've been in uh, for the last long, long, long period of time. And I today invest for both dividend income and for growth. And even uh, though um, I would like nothing more than for one day the world to be a tobacco-free world. I don't believe that's going to happen in my lifetime. And I think that that continues to create a really, really valid investment. I own Apple Computer. I own so big, great, large companies. That's what I own. And I tend to own a relatively small number of large companies that I can be that I can know and understand well. So my current stock portfolio is is reasonable size, and yet it only has 14 equities in it. There are 14 stocks in that portfolio, but they're all companies that I know really well. And uh, so that's what I do. And I, I uh, also have the discipline. I have a pretty large cash flow, and I invest 50% of my cash flow every month. And uh, and, and that's easy to say, um, but I believe and. and for so many years, it didn't matter how much money I made, I spent all of it. It took a long time to figure it out that making money and creating wealth are not the same thing. Uh, but I would encourage every single person, every person who reviews this, to identify what is a minimum acceptable amount of your cash flow, whatever it is, to scrape off the table and invest it conservatively and wisely from now until you die. And in so doing, irrespective of the current size of your income, you will retire a wealthy man or woman. That's just the truth. And anyone of you who have not, if, if I could ask you right now, Ian, if I asked you, for example, do you know the five laws of gold as taught by George S. Glasson in The Richest Man in Babylon? If you don't know those five laws of gold, then I can say with great confidence, absolute certainty that you violate one or more of them. And if you don't know them and therefore you violate them, the logical outcome is not that one will create enough assets to become wealthy. That's just the truth. And so I would refer every single listener or watcher to George S. Glasson's Richest Man in Babylon. It's a very short read. It's an easy read. It's done in fable form. And um, it identifies the things one must do, starting wherever you are, to become more financially secure five years from now, 10 years from now, and 20 years from now. And basically, I lived my financial world based upon the five laws of gold or the five rules of gold taught by Glasson and the Richest Man in Babylon. So that's that's the single most important book to you is The Richest Man in Babylon? Um that's the most important book in terms of knowing how to create wealth gotcha. yes, in knowing how to create wealth. Now, shall I, shall I give you a formula on how to make money? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So here's a formula. The vast majority of things that I teach are things that I was once taught by somebody else. Um, I, I'm sometimes described as a, a leader. Some people say that I'm a really good leader. Some say I'm a great leader. I don't know if any of that's true or not. Uh, what I will tell you is I'm the very best follower you will ever find. I am a fantastic follower. I find people who are accomplishing what I want to accomplish, and then I do what they do. I'm not an innovator. Um, I don't have unique or, or um, proprietary thoughts. Um, there are lots of smart people out there, right? I mean, who am I to think that I'm going to have a unique thought? And so I find people who are accomplishing what I want to accomplish, and then I model their behaviors. That's what I do. And um, periodically, um, I find a way to improve upon something. I think that deer, for example, are much smarter than humans. If, um, there, if there was now, if I lived in Colorado or Utah instead of where I do, and I looked outside and there was five feet of freshly fallen snow and two deer walking through it, the second deer would be smart enough to know that if she's one foot outside the path of the first deer, it's like there is no path, right? Deer are smarter. She follows exactly in the path of the one who's gone before. Humans aren't that smart. Humans bob and weave, and they bounce back and forth, and once, across, once in a while they cross that path, but they tend to try to break their own path, and I simply don't do that. I find a path that's been proven to work by somebody else, and that's what I do. And that's what's enabled me to accomplish some things that I would never have guessed that I could accomplish. But now to get back to this formula for creating income. And once, by the way, I, for years I taught this as the keys to the creation of wealth. And then I realized um, that I had earned enormous amounts of money, and I had no money. Because I was spending it all. I was speculating instead of investing. There's all kinds of things. So I no longer call this the keys to the creation of wealth. I now call this the keys to the creation of a large income in the shortest possible period of time. And I will share that with you. 
Um, this, by the way, this next few minutes, if, um, if nothing else that I have said or do say on this podcast, if nothing else matters to anybody, this does. If you'll put this model to work in your life, you can put behind years of not making enough money. The first key is to find a vehicle that is going the direction that you want to go. Now, that seems so obvious, and yet well-intended, seemingly very bright people violate that principle every day. For example, I referenced that I was a stockbroker. We've talked about that. Well, during the years that I was a broker, if I were to call you, Ian, and say, Ian, Merrill Lynch thinks that you should be buying IBM. And if you bought 1,000 shares of IBM, then you would pay the share price, and you would pay 50 cents per share commission. Merrill Lynch would keep 25 cents and they would pay me 25 cents. So if you bought 1,000 shares of IBM, I would make $250. Today, I'm guessing, I'm hoping that if anybody's reviewing this now and you're buying stocks, I'm guessing you're going to E-Trade or TD America or you're going to wherever you're going and you're, you're doing online trading and you're paying $6.95. And so what I once got paid $250 for, today a broker gets paid $2.50. It's simply not the same, is it? the vehicle's going the wrong direction. A stockbroker cannot join that industry today and have the same financial outcome that I had. The vehicle's going backwards, it's not going forwards. And so the strongest swimmer in the world can dive in the river and swim upstream for a period of time, but sooner or later, he or she is going to go the direction of the flow. And so the first key to the creation of large income in a short period of time is to find a vehicle or a venture that is going the direction that you want to go. And I, I counsel people to not just automatically say, well, my vehicle's going the right direction. No, if you're struggling financially, there's a greater than 50% chance that it's because the vehicle that you're in is not going the right direction. And so therefore you cannot. Second key is to find a vehicle that is moving the speed at which you would like to grow. I referenced that earlier this morning, I was at a, at a meeting and when I came home, my car was going mostly 40 miles an hour. So if my car was going 40 miles an hour, then how fast was I going? I was going 40, Ian, right? If my vehicle's going 40, I'm going 40. So I meet people that are involved in companies or ventures or vehicles that are going slow, and then they tell me they're going to go fast. No, you're not. That defies the laws of nature. If the vehicle you're in is going slow, you're going to go slow. You can go from the back of the bus to the front of the bus, but you'll still be in the same bus. And so you can outperform the vehicle for a short period of time, but you will be marginalized to the speed of the vehicle. Number one, find a vehicle that's going the direction you want to go. Number two, find a vehicle that's moving at the speed at which you would like to grow. Number three, find that kind of a vehicle that is nearer its origin than it is its destination. See, the closer a vehicle gets to its ultimate destination, the less chance or even possibility there is of having a financial breakthrough. For instance, I referenced that I'm buying Amazon, and I'm buying Apple, and I'm buying Berkshire Hathaway. These are huge companies. All of the growth, the vast majority of the growth is behind them. That's why I referenced that that's an appropriate investment for me today at 61 years old. That's not an investment that I would have been making when I was 31 years old. Find a vehicle. If you want to have a breakthrough financial experience, you must find a vehicle that is nearer its origin than it is its destination. The closer it gets to its destination, the less likelihood there is to have a financial breakthrough. And the great entrepreneurial dance is to find a vehicle going the direction you want to go, moving the speed at which you would like to grow, that is as close to its point of origin as is possible given your personal risk parameters. Because if you get all the way to the point of origin, now you're at the ground floor, the total bottom, and it may not get off the ground, right? So that's the great entrepreneurial dance. Find a vehicle going the direction you want to go, moving the speed at which you would like to grow, that is nearer its origin than it is its destination, as close to the origin as is possible within the confines of your risk and reward parameters. And then this is the big one. This is the one. This is the ring the bell one. In my life, um, I've had three very substantial financial breakthroughs. Um, in no case was it because I made something happen. I've not been able to make anything happen in my life. Whenever I struggle and flounder and flail to try to make something happen, then my history is I tend to outperform the market by a few percentage points. When I ring the bell, it's when I find something that would happen without me. It's not about making something happen. Find a vehicle going the direction you want to go, moving the speed at which you would like to grow, that is nearer its origin than its destination, and then ask yourself this question, is it me that's going to make this happen? If it is, don't do it. If it's going to happen without you, maybe you should do it. 
if you determined that it would happen, if you did it all in your power to stop it from happening, then that is where you ring the bell. Find something that is destined to occur and then become one of the reasons that that which is destined to occur occurs more quickly because of you. And that, by the way, gives you the exact reason that I am today involved in the end of the prohibition of cannabis. That's the business that I'm involved in. I participate in the end of the prohibition of cannabis. Well, tell me this, Ian. Even if you're not involved in the business and know nothing about it, do you think that genie's going back in the bottle? See, I don't. It's not. It's going to continue to happen. It's unraveling in breathtaking form. It's going to happen whether I do it and whether you do it. And if I do everything I can to stop it from occurring, it will still occur. That's the model that I use. And so the reason that I've had these three meaningful financial breakthroughs is because I found three separate circumstances in my life where I found a vehicle going the direction I wanted to go, moving the speed at which I wanted to grow that was very near its origin. And then the real bell ringer was I found something that would occur if I didn't do it. I found something that would occur if I did all I could to stop it. Then I became one of the reasons that that which was destined to occur occurred a little more quickly in broader fashion in my area because of my participation. That little lesson right there has been worth millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to me. And, and lesson number two, when you say a speed that you would like to grow, mm-hmm. you're speaking not just financially, but from a personal development standpoint as a person? In this one, in this particular model, this is about making money. Uh, lots of things that I do are about becoming, as I've referenced, what I want to do is be more happy more of the time. That's about personal growth. Gotcha. That's about becoming a different person. What I just referred to you as a model that is about making money, period. That has nothing to do with an individual growing. That has to do with if you want to make more money more quickly, then find something that fits inside that model. Gotcha. Yeah, booming industry, medical marijuana. It is inevitable. That is for damn sure. It is a big one. Yeah, it's insane that it took this long to come to come through. Yeah, it's a complete mind blower to me that a person could take and walk into a store and buy marijuana. You know, it's a mind blower for me. But once again, I don't have to because of my particular background. Um, I don't use anything that has any thought or risk of impairing me. I mean, I would never smoke a joint. Um, but I don't need to use a product to know of its validity. And by the way, I'm completely involved in the non-psychoactive part of the cannabis space, not in the psychoactive part. But the, the point of this is not to intrigue anyone with my particular business choices, but to educate about a business model. Find a vehicle going the direction you want to go, moving the speed at which you'd like to grow, nearer its origin than its destination. Find something that's destined to occur without you, and then become the reason that that which was destined to occur occurs more quickly. You just rang the bell. Or a gong. I don't know what it is, but I love the idea of ringing <laughs> a gong. It's much more There you go. Enticing. I like that. I like that. Okay. Are there any uh, leaders that, out of all the different books and people uh, that you've listened to, maybe Jim Rohn in the past or... Tony Robbins or whoever that you really look up to, that would be like the one person you wish you could meet if you could have went back in time? Oh, I did meet him. It's Jim, Jim Rohn. Um, Jim actually spoke at a couple of functions for me. I got to know him quite well. Um, it was um, it was so many years ago. I didn't realize it, but the core reason for my dissatisfaction with myself, the reason I was so unhappy, no matter what I accomplished, was because of a poor self-esteem. I did not have a healthy self-esteem. And a, a person did me an enormous favor. This is in 19, I might get the year wrong, but I believe it was probably in 1986. A person gave me The Art of Exceptional Living by Jim Rohn. And, and he told me, he actually wrote a note on that when he handed it to me. Um, he could see in me something that I could not see in myself, and that was that I was living a life of fear. I was just afraid. I was afraid of what other people thought of me. I was afraid I wasn't going to have enough. I was afraid, I was afraid, I was afraid, I was afraid. I was afraid. And I personally think the single biggest negative attribute, the biggest thing that can stop a person from great accomplishment is living a life of fear. And um, when he gave me that art of exceptional living, he wrote on it in a sticky note. He said, Randy, what are you afraid of? And at that point in time, you couldn't have, I, I would never have acknowledged that I was living a life of fear. I couldn't quantify that. I didn't realize that's what was driving me, but it was. And it was when I began listening to Jim Rohn that he helped me understand things about myself that I just did not understand. And he made me able to hear things that other people said to me. Um, And Jim Rohn specifically with me resonated. I was raised in Idaho. He was raised in Idaho. I don't have a formal education. He didn't have a formal education. He ultimately found his way to the direct selling industry. I ultimately found my way to the direct selling industry. Um, He's a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. I mean, the the, uh, things that Uh, Jim Rohn, specifically, of all of the personal development coaches, mentors, leaders, he is the one that made by far the biggest imprint on me. Amazing. That must be remarkable. 
that must have been some pretty powerful moments. Like, do you, can you still oh, remember and, word for word what he said to you back then? Oh, listen, there were so many stories. I mean, there, there are just so many. But I remember one, one of the concepts that he taught, not his exact words. I've now taught his concepts for so long. They're not my concepts. As I said, I'm not aware of ever having had an original thought. <laughs> what I do is I find things that other people have done and, and try to make them fit me. Right. But it was, it was when I was um, a stockbroker and I was struggling so much because of fear. I didn't know that's what it was. But I was struggling so much because of fear. I was afraid to pick up the phone and call a contact. I was afraid to call a prospect. I was afraid to be told no. I was afraid of all this stuff, and I was accomplishing nothing. And it was actually in that context that somebody gave me that that art of exceptional living and said, what are you afraid of? And uh, the only revenue-producing activity you have as a new stockbroker is to make calls, and I wasn't making any. And the, the days were going by, and I wasn't producing anything. And, and my my job was going to be in jeopardy pretty soon. And that's when this fellow named Scotty gave me the art of exceptional living. And, and Roan taught this concept of creating for myself or creating for ourselves short-term empowering behaviors. Now, those are my words, not his. His concepts are my words. But he, he taught to create short-term empowering behaviors so that I could be able to do for the next few moments something that I wasn't able to do a few moments ago. And at about that point in time... I remember that I went and I watched the very first Rocky movie, and I, I went there during market hours. I wasn't making any calls anyway, and I went and I watched the first, the first, uh, the first Rocky movie, and I can still recall to this moment the way that I felt when Stallone ran up the steps of the uh, Philadelphia Public Library. I remember it the second, and I can remember the music, and I thought as I was watching that, I thought, wow, if I felt like this, then I could make those calls. And so I got myself a headset, and on the way back home, I stopped at a Walgreens, and I picked up the uh, I picked up the soundtrack to Rocky. And the next day, I went to the office, and I listened to a few beats of "Gonna Fly Now," and that elevated me. And you see, what did, what do I do today? I've learned how to elevate myself. I do today what I was learned then, what I was taught then. I learned how to break the mold that my head is in and get myself to the right pitch. And so I could listen. I could listen for a few minutes, and having listened for a few minutes, then I could make the calls that before made me afraid. And so I'd call, I'd call, I'd call, and then I'd listen again, and I'd call, and I'd call, and I'd call. And by the way, I caution everybody to know that as you begin to make progress, you will face opposition. I mean, now I've got people going around the office because if my success would be damaging to somebody else, we're competing with one another. The, the top 50 brokers in the office are secure. The bottom 40 brokers, their jobs are all being hired for. That's the truth. You've got to be in the top half. And if you've been involved there for more than two years, you're not in the top half. You're about to go out the door. And so that's the environment that I was in. And as I started to succeed, making the calls and therefore succeeding, other brokers are teasing me relentlessly. They're shadow boxing. I'm getting incredible grief. Just know this. When you start to grow, you will face opposition, period. You'll face opposition from competitors. You'll also face opposition from people who will benefit most from your success, even in your family. That will happen. But I kept listening. And a couple of years into it, here came Rocky Three. And by the way, when I speak, among other things, I'm a public speaker. And when I speak, I always have the same sound crew, and they always know that before I walk on stage what the music is that has to be playing, because it is the Eye of the Tiger. Bum, 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 <laughs> that is what is played before I walk on stage for the last 25 years, because my mind has been trained that even if in the 90 seconds before I was called up to speak, in the 90 seconds before that, if I got a devastatingly bit of bad news, I can listen to that. And in a matter of minutes, it's seconds, not minutes, it elevates me to the place that I need to be. And so I learned a long, long time ago, because of Jim Rohn, I learned how to create short-term empowering behaviors to make me able to do for the next few moments what I couldn't do a few moments ago. And if one becomes able to do in the next few minutes what we couldn't do a few minutes ago, then we put to work in our lives a truth that was voiced by Cicero thousands of years ago when he said, the skill to do comes from the doing. My observation is this, I don't ever meet people who fail because they do that which is required to succeed, but do it poorly. I wanna say that again. I don't ever meet people who fail because they do that which is required to succeed, but do it poorly. I instead meet countless well-intended people who don't do what's required to succeed, and why do they not? Because of fear. Whether or not they can quantify it, that is why they do not. And so by creating short-term empowering behaviors, that made it possible for me to do for the next few minutes what I couldn't do before. And then because I did, as Cicero said, the skill to do comes from the doing. And so having done it enough times, I then became highly skilled. I could never have become highly skilled had I not become the, 
created the short-term empowering behavior to make me able to act. So, Wow. Wow. That was some powerful stuff, dude. It's the real deal. That's the real stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. fear. Uh, that's, the, that's the biggest driver for, it's, I would assume, for everybody. Um, Almost everybody. It's why we make. It's why we make the choices that we make. The good ones, the bad ones. I mean, very few good choices are made out of fear. Bad choices are almost always made out of fear. Um, so my my guidance to everybody, and and once again, you'll notice as we started our conversation today, um, I didn't remember when I did that this morning that that was something that I was taught because I listened to Jim Rohn in 1986. But the way I started my morning today and the way that I started my morning yesterday and the way that I'll start it tomorrow is because I listened to Jim Rohn in 1986 and continued. That, that, that whole aspect of fear is something that I feel like you never completely get to the top. You're always facing it because with every level, there's a new devil and you always got to grow into it and you're always going to come up sure. with new things. But doing these daily activities to get you in that mindset to face them, that's a major, major key. And you mentioned you and your... Uh, along with yourself, Jim Rome, both got involved in the direct sales organization and you guys had a kind of uh, a back and forth with that and had a common resemblance. In your time since you have been involved in the industry for a freaking long time, I mean, you've been in the 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 DSA, um, you've been on a board of directors for a a huge company at 26 years old, you've made multi, multi millions inside the industry, still do one of the top income earners in the entire industry. What have you seen has been kind of a shift that you might have seen from, say, 35, 40 years ago versus to right now? And where do you see the direct sales industry heading 20, 30 years from now? Okay, so now, unfortunately, there's absolutely nothing I've said up until now that could be upsetting or disappointing or offend anybody. What I'll say now will be upsetting and and offend some people. Um, I think that the industry has slid downhill way more than it's gone uphill. I think that it's enormously more difficult for newcomers to make money today than it was when I first got involved. Um, I believe that compensation mechanisms have become incredibly overweighted to the very top of the food chain and that um, it's, it's almost like trying to grab a cloud for a lot of people. And once again, I'm sorry that I'll offend some people. I don't intend to do that, but I personally think that the iteration of binary was one of the most devastating things that ever happened to the network marketing industry. Um, I think it's one of the worst ways to pay people, and it makes it so extraordinarily difficult for a newcomer to become profitable early on. And also in that particular compensation mechanism, there is so rarely integrity in the tree and people are being slotted into the tree. Um, I also am an incredible opponent to one of the current industry norms, which is to be paying people outside of the compensation plan. Um, Business development agreements and special deals are being cut over and over and over again. Um, If you want to know how I get paid, then look at my company's PDF for the compensation plan. That's the way that I get paid. And that's the way that every single person gets paid in our organization, in our company. Um, So I'm an advocate for the industry, but I am not especially enamored of what's happened to the industry in terms of the way they compensate people generally over the course of the last 20 years. Um, Also, if we go back to when I first got started in direct selling, um, if a person did, if a person enrolled a new member who placed a $500 order, then there was maybe 400 volume points or maybe even 450 volume points that found their way into the compensation plan. Uh, there are some really large direct selling companies today who would argue that their compensation plan hasn't changed in the last 20 years. Well, that's just not true because even if the document looks the same, where it used to take a dollar to get 90 to get 90 cents in commissionable volume, now it takes a dollar 80. So it takes twice as much money in to get a commission dollar out today in most companies from when I got started in the industry. And so. Um, I I remain an advocate for the entire industry, but I hedge that today. Um, 15 years ago, I just said I was an advocate for the entire industry, period. Today, because I am so emphatically opposed to what I think happens to people in too many of the compensation mechanisms, I today hedge that. I'm an advocate for the industry with a qualifier on the fact that I think that some compensation plan mechanisms are blatantly unfair. And so once again, if that offended anyone, any of your listeners, I didn't intend to do that. But as you know from me now, I tell you what I perceive to be the truth, right? And that's what I perceive to be the truth. Interesting. And where do you think it's heading? Like in terms of mass adoption, growth, social media influence, stuff like that? Well, the industry, in terms of its perception, is unchanged today versus years ago when I got involved. You know, one of the reasons that money is to be made in our industry is because people don't don't value it. Um, 
if everybody thought direct selling was great, then there wouldn't the compensation plans wouldn't pay the way that they pay. Whenever I hear somebody saying, oh, it's going to be mainstream. No, it's not. Why is it not going to be mainstream? Because 95% of people who get enrolled in a direct selling company today will be enrolled by um, a well-intended yet uninformed person who doesn't know how to show them how to make money. You know, one of the great challenges in the direct selling industry is that almost all recruiting calls are made by people who are just starting. Brand new people make most recruiting calls. And so by and large, it's an industry full of people who are not making money, calling their friend, telling them they can show them how to make money. I mean, that's kind of insane, isn't it? Right. And, and so there has to be a mechanism where the brand newest person has access to proper, correct training and mentoring that is not directly tied to their sponsor or their sponsor's sponsor or 10 generations upline. There has to be a universal, what I call a proven, predictable pattern of activities that is universally available to all so that who your personal sponsor is is not so critically important. But to go back to this idea of is this going to become mainstream? No. The reason it's not is because most people who join the industry today, this week, they will join companies knowing nothing about the compensation plan, knowing nothing about whether or not the compensation plan is fair. Um, they will enter an arena where the product offering may or may not be unique and special and probably will not be especially well-priced. And the truth is most people who join the industry today are not going to make money this year. That's the truth. And so they're going to join the industry. They're not going to make money. And now next year, they'll be among those people who are, at, who are not advocates of the industry. So the industry is not going to change in terms of broad-scale acceptance unless the industry changes in a huge, huge way to make compensation plans more accessible to early participants and to make a basic training structure available to every new person who joins every company, irrespective of who their sponsor and upline is. And unless there stops being the same degree of selfishness within companies. Whenever I look at a company and I see that there's broad, there's a great big distinction between, quote, whose group are you in? When somebody tells me I'm in so-and-so's group, great. That means you're in a mess. Because if the company itself is divided, if it's divided against itself, it is guaranteed it's not going to go very far. So once again, I'm the most positive person you'll meet. The industry is a thing of beauty. It provokes in people. It requires that people develop new skills. Those new skills can then be imported successfully into every part of their life. It demands that they develop new character attributes. Those new character attributes can be positively exported into every other part of their life. Um, I, I do wish that the industry would spin the clock back a little bit on compensation mechanism to make it more fair and friendly to other people. I wish that leaders would stop ch charging money for training events. Um, and once again, I don't hold myself up as some standard. I'm not. I'm just a person doing my best. But I don't have a darn thing to sell you. If I create a tool, I pay for it, and I then give it to you for free. I don't charge for any event, period, because my success is based upon the compensation plan success of people in my group. Far too many people in the industry are today making money on sales tools. They're making money on functions as opposed to making money because people they're enrolling are making money. And so, once again, I'm an advocate for the entire industry, but I've got a few qualifiers on that because I think there are quite a few things in the industry that are um, not especially good. Interesting. Yeah, I, I liked what you said about a lot of those things because a lot of it is, you know, hocus pocus. A lot of people can get involved in, and there's a huge issue in, inside the industry. And you explained it perfectly well. Uh, good intentioned, but well-informed people under promising and under delivering, right. which right. is just the basis of the whole thing. With that said, the people that succeed in network marketing will say it's the greatest thing that ever happened to them because it gave them a vehicle that they can show their talents, which is very rare. And for most people, right. it's going to be the first vehicle that ever hits them with because they're going to encounter someone in a network marketing company. To this day, people have no idea that like Tupperware is like a network marketing company, you know? Uh, it's just a very, right. very interesting industry. And it's clearly changed so many lives. So uh, Randy, few few other things I just wanna I wanna ask your ask your brain of first of all, this has been one of the most just outstanding interviews I've done today, and I just want to say awesome. that the amount of Thank golden you. nuggets that have been shared. So I'm excited to be able to listen to this back multiple times. Cool. Um, but if you were a 21, 22 year old, um, and you could have went back in time knowing what you know now at 61 years old, and you could have whispered one, two, three, whatever amount of different principles into your ear, like, hey, Randy, go left, not right. Like, what would you have said yourself back then? Okay, first of all, the first thing that I would, I, I implore everyone to read The Richest Man in Babylon by George S. Klassen. 
And I assure you that you're not going to read it the first time and understand it and grasp all that's in it. Read it again and again and again. Read it until you find your behaviors mimicking those that are taught. And you will become financially secure. Period. Period. You don't have to make a lot of money to have a lot of money if you don't lose it. You don't have to make a lot of money to have a lot of money if you don't spend more than you make. Um, if you learn how to invest conservatively and wisely. And for a 21-year-old person, um, I will tell you that there was a time in my life when I was earning over $2.5 million a year, and I didn't have any money. I had two Ferraris and a Lamborghini and two Porsches and five Harley-Davidsons in my garage and a huge mortgage on my house, and I didn't have any money. Um, what I would say to any person of any age is to understand that financial resources do more financial resources earned not given by somebody else okay it doesn't count if you happen to be one of the chosen ones who money was handed to you if you earn financial resources on your own that will do more to create a positive self-esteem than anything else and if we have a positive self-esteem we are more happy more of the time that's first the second thing that i would say is that there is an absolute um barrage of opportunity. When I hear people periodically, I hear somebody reference that a once in a lifetime opportunity. I do not believe in that. I believe that in a life well lived, we are given multiple chances to do something profound with it. That's what I believe, because I don't think that I'm any different than anybody else. And I've had multiple chances. I've probably had some that I didn't see because of the way that I was living my life at that point in time, but I've had multiple chances to do something special. And I've taken a couple of those chances and I've had a pretty special life. Um, the next thing that I would tell you is that if any success of mine, if I cannot know in advance that that success will be born of the successes of other people, then I will choose to pass because no matter how much money I make, it will be hollow and it will not have value. And the, I guess the last thing you asked me, kind of a broad comment there, uh, I would ask that all people, I ask that I myself, I always talk to me and let others listen. You know, I don't propose to teach anybody else anything else. When I'm talking, I'm, I'm hearing me and I'm asking myself. I'm kind of cross-checking as I go down the way. But I would simply ask all people to make every decision based on that little common voice we have inside that tells us that's right or it's not. See, I don't always know what's right, but I always know what's wrong. And I think everybody else does too. If I'm about to make a decision and it's wrong, I know that. Sometimes I have, to poke, I have to poke and prod around to know what's right. And so I just ask everybody to incorporate into your life some kind of a silencing period where we're able to hear those promptings that we get that are guiding us closer and closer to that which is right versus that which is wrong. And no financial outcome, no matter how great, is worth having gained it by making a choice that was wrong to create that financial outcome. Now, Randy... For that person out there that is currently maybe working a nine to five that they either love or they hate, but they're currently doing something that maybe they set out in college for and they're just going through the motions and they're going through what society told them to do and they just find themselves, you know, unentertained, unhappy, not proving themselves to their furthest potential. They're basically stuck. And in the back of their mind, they're thinking that they want to start a business. They want to dive into entrepreneurship. They want to do something, but they're scared. They don't know what to do. They don't know if they're going to make it. You know, They don't know what's the first step. What would you tell that person that's in that pickle right now listening to this podcast if they're just right on the cusp of, of jumping out there and making moves? What I would tell them is that the direct selling industry network marketing is the single greatest training ground for entrepreneurship that exists. And uh, even though I've, I've referenced that I'm not especially pleased with what goes on in, in quite a bit of the industry right now, um, if one were to really throw his or her heart and soul into any even moderately correctly constructed direct selling company for the next five years, he or she will develop skills and character attributes and an awareness that makes possible everything else. And it's, a, it's the single biggest relationship building device. I mean, I think today of my own world, if tomorrow I was for some reason prohibited to be involved in direct selling, and yet I still wanted to be active in life and business, I know people today, and not just know, I have friends on virtually every, not just on every continent, in every nation. Um, I've conducted business in every time zone in the world. I've conducted business in virtually every currency in the world. Um, I, the opportunities that are available to me today are so broad 
and they they completely transcend and go way outside of direct selling because of the relationships that I built in the industry. And so I would tell anyone who is in that nine to five job and is not thrilled with what they're doing, that almost also guarantees they don't have much financial capital to start something with right now. And so direct selling is the answer. And if one gets involved in direct selling, they may find like me that this is the career choice. They may not. They may find, however, that five years into it, they've developed the skills and character attributes and the awareness and the relationships that make possible whatever else they want to do. It's the single greatest educational process that I could possibly in, in, encourage anyone to get themselves involved in. Yeah, I, I know personally in my life when I was in school, I learned more in direct sales when I was 20 years old in a semester than I did in the four years of college because I was out exactly. there doing it, learning, failing right. fast. That's um, it. Randy, how can people follow you on whether it be like your website, social media? How can people get more of Randy? Okay, my, uh, my website is randyschrader.com. And uh, I do post a lot. As I told you, every single thing I do is free. Nothing. There's nothing that I charge. Um, my Facebook page is a good place to go because I do a lot of my trainings. Um, I do live. I do on Facebook lives and I store them. So just connect with me on Facebook. Again, Randy Schrader. Um, I'm also on Instagram and all that kind of stuff. But what I would suggest is uh, go to randyschrader.com. That's a good starting point. Um, also, I am uh, I'm just the most open guy. I mean, I will tell you what I consider to be the truth. Um, if you have any questions about anything, I'm happy to help. Um, I'll even give you my email address. I won't hand out my telephone number here, but my email address is Randy Schrader, like my name, S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R, 1015. Now you all know my birthday, so I'll expect a lot of birthday cards, 1015. Randy Schrader, 1015 at me.com. And anything I can do to help anybody, I'd be happy to. And it's been a pleasure being on here with you. Thank you so much, Randy. It's been real. And uh, again, I can't wait to re-listen to this. Beautiful. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.